Good morning. How's everybody? We're well. We miss everybody. Good. Uh, Melanie. We are too much. Yes. I am going to welcome everyone and thank you so much for making this teaching a part of your morning. Uh, thank you for muting your systems at this point. And I'll pray for us and then pull up our screen share. <clears throat> our Father, what a, what a glory to call upon your name. We would never do so. But for you seeking us, raising us from death to life, giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, making us one with your glorious, everlasting, precious, eternal Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this study in Romans. Thank you for the spiritual hunger you have given to these men and women. Thank you for your desire to satisfy their hearts with the, the food of your word. Please use me as your instrument to that end. Use the word of God. Use uh, the, the shoulders of uh, theologians on, on which we stand to understand some of these things. And so we pray that our hearts would be transformed, our minds renewed by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify us by it. Make us more like Christ. Fill us with hope, confidence, wisdom, joy, boldness, worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to hit screen share and pull up the handout. Perhaps you've accessed it this morning or during the week. Here we go. We are continuing our study of Romans 8, 28 to 39, what I called last week the Mount Himalaya of Assurance. The, um, the theme here is the father's commitment to his son's family. I get that from simply flying over the text and asking what, what is the meta theme here? And since all of scripture is God-centered, all of history is centered on what God is doing through the Lord Jesus Christ, then we come up with this truth that uh, Paul is putting suffering in perspective by paling back the veil, shrouding our view of how God is working his purposes out on earth through his unseen rule. So believers often suffer from belonging to Jesus. Believers sometimes wonder why am I a Christian? Why is an Uncle Joe not a Christian? How is it I became a Christian? These kinds of things. And so Paul is pleased to give us insight into what God is doing in the unseen world. And that's essentially what's happening in these verses. And he begins by saying there in verse 28, and we know, and it's worth asking, how does he know? Well, we know based on the way God has revealed himself and the way he's worked in history. That's how we know things. God has to tell us or we're not going to discover them on our own. But thank God, he is a person who loves to reveal himself. He loves to be known. The whole creation is screaming his glory. And then we have the ways he has revealed himself in word and special revelation in scripture and the way he's revealed himself in, the, in his acts of providence, the way he's worked in history. So last week we looked at the doctrine of providence and the sovereignty of God, Paul affirming, we know, we're certain, we can be confident, we can rest in this, that no matter what is happening to us, how hard, how difficult, how mysterious, how challenging, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that raises what question? 
What purpose has he called us to? Well, it seems Paul immediately answers that question in verse 29 by using the word for, for those whom he foreknew. So Paul's going to reach back into eternity, direct your attention, he's going to peel back that veil of what's happening in the unseen world and say, hey, go back as far as you want to in time and you're going to see that God is actively doing something. God foreknew a people and then based on that foreknowledge, he predestined to conform them to the image of his son in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here it is, the goal of all things. The father giving a family to his son Jesus who perfectly reflect his image. The father wants every single redeemed person this is the ones Jesus will come to earth, born of a virgin, born as a man, lived among us, kept the law of God perfectly, died on the cross to purchase our forgiveness, salvation, redemption, cleansing. He comes and accomplishes this so that the Father can give him a people who reflect his image. So the, in, 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 in glory, the whole earth will be filled, might sound blasphemous, with little Christs. Every single person in glory will reflect the glory of Jesus. This is what the Father is seeking in you now. This is why we seek to be holy, why we seek to love righteousness, why we seek to put off sin and anything that is unchrist-like. The Father is seeking to, to find himself, to find reflected in you the image of his son. You see that alluded to in Hebrews 2, 10 and 11, in bringing many sons to glory. Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Jesus has a family, brothers and sisters. He wants you. Look what he paid to get you. And it's worth asking, when did all this get set in motion? Paul says in Ephesians 1, 3, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So you are known as a person from all eternity past. God knows you. He, pre he foreknew you. He then predestined that in space and time, he would save you. He'd bring you into relationship with himself so that for all eternity, Jesus can enjoy us, his brothers and sisters. So that then transports us in our outline to Appendix 2, what I'm calling unconditional election. We're going to explore for as long as it takes the doctrine of sovereign grace, what it means to be chosen by God. There's a great book by R.C. Sproul, Chosen by God. It's made many a person a believer in these doctrines. That's the reason to do it, though, is because it's biblical. So we're going to take an excursus and unpack basically what Paul is telling us here. I'm going to go back to um, 29 again. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. This is the doctrine of predestination, unconditional election. You may recognize the phrase unconditional election as one of the, quote, five points of Calvinism. Now, John Calvin did not name these. I think he's such a humble and God-centered man, he'd be aghast that a whole system of theology would be named for him. Nonetheless, this is what we have. Uh, many of us recall ourselves 
modern-day Calvinists. Because of the teaching of the church, John Calvin certainly taught and believed what we're going to unpack here. But these five points actually have come to the church uh, through a church synod in the Netherlands in 1619, something called the Synod of Dort, which was actually a response, a theological necessity from pastors in the Dutch Reformed Church who were changing some of the teachings of the Reformation, disagreeing with men like Calvin and Luther and others on some of these critical doctrines related to salvation. So let me ask somebody out there to mute. Somebody needs to mute, thank you. And it was the, uh, these Dutch uh, uh, theologians answered a document put forth by followers of Jacob Arminius called the Remonstrance. Notice that you have Arminius as AS. I've changed mine to US because that was a typo on my part. This is what I have on the handout here is how you're supposed to spell his name. So he was a theologian in good standing in the church and he began to see these issues of why people are saved differently than the mainstream, so to speak, reformers. Subsequent to the Synod of Dort, these five points are put into this acrostic tulip. This didn't come from the Synod of Dort. They weren't speaking English at the time, right? They were speaking Dutch or whatever. But subsequent to that, someone very cleverly took these five points and, and uh, put them into this very easy to remember acrostic tulip. They stand for totaled up five different doctrines, all related to the question, those whom he foreknew he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, total depravity, or some might prefer radical corruption, meaning at the root of who we are, radix, Latin root, we're corrupt, unconditional election, limited atonement, or some prefer definite redemption. It answers the question, for whom did Christ die? Irresistible grace. See, Arminius and his followers taught it was possible to resist the grace of God. If God decided to set his grace upon you and draw you to himself and save you, human beings can resist that and therefore consign themselves to an eternity apart from God. And then the perseverance of the saints. The reason that's in there is the followers of Arminius and Arminius said, it's not altogether certain that once you're saved, you can keep your salvation. So these theologians got together and they said, whoa, Nellie, we need to affirm what we see the Bible teaching on these things. So before I move on, I just want to point out one other thing to you. If somebody said, do you go to a reformed church? You would say, I do. But let me assure you, at least this is just me speaking, my church is about the Bible, my church is about Jesus, and yes, we do teach a view of salvation that humbles us. It humbles us. People who believe these doctrines should be the most humble people on the face of the earth because they know the only reason they're a believer in Jesus is what God did in spite of themselves. They know they would never be brought to faith but for God's insistence. So we should be the most humble people on the face of the earth. It turns out that a lot of Reformed theologians don't look so humble. <laughs> we tend to argue a lot with our, ourselves and other people. And we should be the most worshipful. This doctrine is designed to bring about all praise and glory and honor to God, as we'll see as we move towards the end of the handout, the very end of the handout. 
Incidentally, this is a slightly different version than I put up on the screen last week. I just wanted to condense everything into this one handout. So, so don't be confused if this looks different than last week's handout, if you made a copy of it. So here's, here's what I want to tell you. Yes, we're a Reformed church, but picture yourself in our lovely worship space. And look up and look at the banners around the, uh, what do we call that, the ambulatory, the upstairs ambulatory. What's on those banners? Is Tulip on those banners? No. The five solas of the Reformation are. This is, this is one way to talk about what it means to be a Reformed church. Sola Scriptura, only Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, only by grace alone. Sola Fide, only by faith alone are we saved. Sola Christus, all through Christ alone. And Sola Dei Gloria, all to the glory of God alone. So there are other ways to describe what is a Reformed church. You could, you could avoid the tulip thing and say, oh, we're all about the solas. And if you took time, you could see embedded in the solas are the five points of Calvinism. But I just wanted you to see there are different ways of identifying what a Reformed church is. Hooray. And of course, this doctrine is teased out and spelled out magnificently in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and, um, which is, many of us believe, one of the finest summaries of Christian doctrine ever written. And there are other Reform uh, uh, confessions as well, Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, etc. So let's, I want to caution you in a couple of ways. Uh, so before we begin to uh, exegete where we get this, all these things, this sovereign grace, don't forget your mute buttons, folks. Couple of cautions. Number one, this is a hard doctrine. It assaults our pride. There is in all of us this tenacious insistence on proving we are somehow savable. And so just want you to know if, if there's something in, maybe you don't believe this doctrine, you're still welcome to the church. Um, you may notice that in the first membership vow, there's a, there's a hint of this doctrine. What's the first membership vow in PCA churches? Please, please put your mute on, please. Thank you. First membership vow of PCA churches. Um, do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure? And without hope, save for his sovereign mercy. Now, you don't necessarily have to believe all this to be a member in good standing of a PCA church. You do need to believe it to be an officer, which is, is appropriate. But uh, notice that phrase, save for his sovereign mercy. Well, in a sense, that's what we're unpacking in this lesson. What in the world did I assent to when I said yes? So this is a hard doctrine. Number two, election, sovereign grace, predestination, should bring us great comfort. That's how it comes to us in the scriptures. It doesn't come as this intellectual debate about who's in and who's out. It comes to comfort believers because we know we're the work of God from eternity to eternity. God is the author of our salvation, Hebrews 12 tells us, Jesus is. And he will finish this good work he began. Philippians 1.6, I'm confident that he who began a good work and he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. That's not only the work of the Philippians in their ministry. Standing behind that is the work of God, according to Philippians 2. God working in them, all that is pleasing in his own sight. So we exist in our salvation for God's glory. We're his work. 
That should comfort us. I, I personally do find tremendous comfort in this doctrine. If I'm struggling or doubting or fearful, and I stop and ask the question, just, just a minute, Mike, why in the world are you a Christian? Why do you believe this stuff? And I know why. God is the one who brought me into faith with himself. Please hit your mute button. Please hit your mute button. Third caution. Some folks say this. I've heard this over the years as a pastor. Well, we just can't understand all this, so why bother? Isn't this a mystery? And I would respond this way if, if you believe that or maybe someone has told you that. There is mystery in this doctrine, and the mystery is, why does God choose some and not others? Now, the closest Paul gets to answering that question is in Romans 9. But without going there, there is mystery. I don't know why I was chosen, and I just heard the other day of a childhood friend, a neighborhood buddy of mine I used to play touch football with in McLean, named Steve, he died. I asked my brother, did he die in unbelief? Yes, I don't know why Steve was never brought to faith in Jesus. Um, there may be human explanations for that. But why me and not Steve? That's a mystery why God chose me. But it is not mysterious that in fact God does elect some and not others. We can't call a mystery what the Bible clearly teaches. If the Bible teaches unconditional election, we're bound to believe it whether or not we like it. So does that sound a little harsh? Well, I need to say that pastorally. You be the judge at the end of our study. If the Bible teaches unconditional election, or whatever doctrine, fill in the blank, we've got to believe it. It's not like we have the privilege of picking and choosing. <laughs> we've got to believe it if the Bible teaches it, whether or not we like it. And some people don't like this doctrine, and they should love it. They should love this doctrine, not only because the Bible teaches it, but because it brings such glory to God, and it gives us comfort. Fourth caution. Some folks wrestle with this doctrine for years. We must be patient with each other as God is with us. Hasn't some of your views on theology, haven't some of those views changed over the years? Sure. I've gotten more clarity on things, having studied the Bible over the years. So we, we want to be patient with each other, and, and we're not saying that you're not a Christian if you don't believe this doctrine. What makes you a Christian? Who you trust for your salvation. That's what makes you a Christian. You may think that you're the one that brought that to pass. Okay, I, I'll never believe that. Uh, I'm really certain you didn't bring to pass getting, uh, being born again, as we'll see from the handout. God brought that to pass. But... And, and, and I will say this, when we, when we think about all of us standing before the throne of God, you know, casting down our golden crowns, worshiping him, we can be certain there'll be no, the presence of nothing. What can you be certain there will not be at the throne? There will be no human boasting. No human boasting. All the glory is going to go to God. And I believe that if the Arminian view is correct, human beings have something to boast about. If I'm an Arminian and I'm a Christian and you're not, I made a better choice than you did. Now, in all fairness, I don't think our Arminian brothers and sisters would say, oh, look at me, aren't I great because I believed. I would give them the benefit of the doubt that they would be humble. And again, are we Reformed people humble? Are we really humble? 
Did you wake up this morning and go, I can't believe he saved me, me, me of all people. I can't, what a, what a cosmic joke. He saved me. Are we humble? So I want to tease out the three typical objections. There may be more that you'll hear from folks who don't, who don't believe the Bible teaches this or who don't like this doctrine. Here's the first objection. God is unjust. This doctrine makes God unfair. He saves some and not others. So whenever you hear a statement like that, ask yourself, what's the presupposition underneath that belief? What's the starting point for making that statement? Well, the starting point I believe the Bible gives us in in Reformed theology is this. God owes no one anything. Actually, what does he owe us all? Justice. He should, all we deserve from God is judgment for our sins. So if that's true, if that's the starting point, and I'm going to show you why it is true, because we're all spiritually dead, and we can do nothing about it in our dead condition. If that's the starting point, he owes no one anything, then the starting point should be, why is anyone saved? Why Why did he save anybody? Not, why didn't he save everybody? And look, um, that, that's, a, that's a fair question. That's a heartfelt question. Those of us who have had loved ones and friends die in unbelief, maybe you have witnessed to them for decades. You've prayed and prayed and prayed. And Oh, incidentally, sidebar, if salvation is up to the individual, what good would praying do? If you pray for someone's salvation, you're acknowledging there's a God you pray to who's responsible to make that happen. Anyway, a little sidebar. I don't want to appear snippy. Janice, tell me later today if I appeared snippy or snarky in, in the way I've addressed this. I've had to work over the years, beloved, because I've been a, a walking contradiction. I think I've taught these doctrines maybe in an arrogant or snippy way, and that's, a, that's just a self-contradicting, isn't it? Because this should make us humble. But all right, I lost my train of thought there. Um, so let's get back to the handout. What's your starting point? He owes no one anything. Why would anyone be saved? And so it raises the question. And this is the question Paul raises in, he anticipates this objection in Romans 9. Read it for yourself. Read it for yourself. Who are you to question what God chooses to do for his glory? And let me just stop right here and say, if you want to be saved, you want to be in heaven, you want to be right with God, you want to enjoy God forever, then simply call on his name right now and he will save you. So on the one hand, we can peel back the veil of what's happening in the unseen world and God gives us a hint at what he chooses to do for his glory and that is elect some and not others, create vessels of mercy versus vessels of wrath, one to display the glory of his mercy, one to display the glory of his justice. But if you right now are fearful that, oh, how, how could I ever be saved if I'm not elect? Call on his name right now with certainty. He will save you. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will refresh you. Take my yoke upon you. Believe and repent. So I want to distinguish between two forms of justice. So if you want to sort of, if you've made a copy of this, you could just draw a circle around the justice and then a circle around the non-justice. There are two forms of justice. There's justice. Everyone gets what they deserve. There's non-justice, and it turns out you can parse non-justice into two forms. 
injustice or unjust versus mercy. Now let's think about it. God owes everyone justice, will, and God, we can be certain, will always be just. Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right or be just. We can be certain God will always be just. Now let's move to the other category, non-justice. Will God ever be unjust? Never. He can't. It's contrary to his character. But there is a category of non-justice called mercy. And if God chooses to show mercy to some and not others, he has not created an injustice. It's either, and look, how can you say this without weeping for those who are lost, without crying tears of joy, of thanksgiving for that you receive mercy? He is either just with people or he is merciful towards people, but he is towards his elect, merciful towards his elect, just towards the, what's called the reprobate or the non-elect. And um, you can be sure he'll never be unjust. A, third, a second characteristic uh, criticism of this doctrine is that God is cruel. So the Arminian looks at we Calvinist reformed people and says, oh, so your God is creating people he knows beforehand he's not going to elect. Is that the case? Yes, it is the case. If the Bible teaches election, and the Bible clearly teaches God creates every human life, which it does, then what? Then, in fact, this is a little mysterious. God is creating people. He's the author of all life. He knows he's not going to save. Please hit your mute button. Now, does the Arminian have us by a noose hanging us? No, because the Arminian also believes that God is the author of life, right? Yes, the Bible clearly teaches God brings every person into being. So the Arminian God, the author of life, is creating people he knows ahead of time who, of their own free choice, aren't going to accept him. Is there really any difference? Not in my mind there isn't. So I, as, as soon as you say God is the author of life, you have a problem because he's creating people he knows ahead of time will not accept him. What the Arminian is trying to preserve, I believe, there is that, no, it's their will is the problem. They willed not to believe, therefore that's where they're going to hell. And we agree, they willed not to believe. And uh, what a mercy that he would put in us the desire to believe. So I personally don't buy that uh, argument against the reform view. Third objection, God is mean. And this is a caricature. I believe it's a straw man. Don't think this is the biblical view at all. And that is that God, the, uh, the reformed God, the God of Calvinism, is keeping people out of heaven who otherwise want to be there. So this picture is everybody's, let me into heaven, let me be in heaven. And God's looking, no, you, I hate you, get out of here, I'll let you in. That is as far from the truth as could be possible. Why? As we'll see as we move through the handout, there's no one saying, let me into heaven, we're dead. We have no interest in God. We're hostile to God. We're enemies of God. We're spiritually dead. There's no desire in us to go to heaven from a human point of view. 
So if the desire is there, obviously God put it there. And we'll, we'll get towards that as we move through the handout. So let's affirm again. If someone wants to go to heaven, they should call on the name of the Lord Jesus with confidence he will save them. It's just so interesting that in Romans 9, where Paul gives his most potent answers to the objections against God's sovereignty, and for him it was personal. For him it was very personal. Romans 9 through 11, as the chapters that follow where we are in Romans 8, Paul is grieving and lamenting that his fellow countrymen, the Jews, are not believing the covenant promises. He, he says, I wish I would... Please hit your mute buttons. He is lamenting that so many of God's people are not um, believing. And so he's unpacking the reason why. I won't go into all his reasoning there. But Romans 9 is this, is this defense, as, so to speak, of uh, unconditional election. And then the next thing comes Romans 10, where he affirms whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I want to diagram that for you. And that is with point number five. God gives us this doctrine to humble and to empower us, not for speculating about who's in and who's out. What do I mean by humble and empower? Well, I've already talked about how it should humble us. I am a follower of Jesus in spite of myself. Why am I saved? God did this. This should empower us in evangelism. Because what? Well, whenever you're doing evangelism, you're speaking the truth to people who are dead. They're deaf. They're blind. They're never going to believe the message until God opens their eyes. That's why we pray. God, use this message. God, open their eyes. God, save my friend. We pray for our family members. God, save them. God, save them. Because he has the power to do it. So what I want you to see is there are three doctrines that to some people seem very confusing but aren't confusing because they're simply answering three different questions. So let's put you over here. You're where it says me. And who does the doctrine of election apply to? Strictly speaking, only you. You can know that you're elect. God wants you to know that you're elect. And the doctrine of election is answering this question. Why am I a Christian? Why did, I, why did I believe in Jesus? Some of you were brought up in, in covenant households. You've never known a day when you, when you didn't believe in Jesus. Your parents did a wonderful job. They were faithful to the covenant. Uh, that was obviously by God's design. Our, our, our kids have no idea how privileged they are to be, a, be born in Christian households. Greater responsibility for those who refuse Jesus being brought up in a Christian household. Anyway. The doctrine of election has nothing to do, per se, with anyone else. That's why you don't need to say, should I go do evangelism with my next door neighbor? Maybe they're not elect, therefore I don't need to bother. No, 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 no. You don't use the doctrine of election to relate to anybody else. You use it as comfort for you. It concerns you. God chose you and answers the question, why am I a Christian? God did this, therefore I have nothing to boast about. So what about anybody else? What doctrine do you use to relate to them? The doctrine of the gospel. What's the doctrine of the gospel? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is a savior for sinners. Are you a sinner? Yes. 
He saves sinners who call on his name. Believe in Jesus. Repent. Turn to Jesus. You'll be saved. That's our hope. My hope is also everyone else's hope. So the only doctrine you want to use, and this is the basis of world missions, is it not? Jesus has said, take this gospel to the ends of the earth. This is why we are seeking to pray for opportunities to bring other people to Jesus. What you want to use to relate to anyone else is the gospel. There's a savior for sinners who will save anybody who calls on his name. That's the gospel. So the gospel answers what question? How do I become a Christian? And again, in in our relationships with people, we want to live with them and love them and help them and serve them and care for them in such a way that they come to ask the question, hey, now wait, are you doing this because you're a Christian? How do I become a Christian? The answer to that question isn't the doctrine of election. The answer to that question is the gospel. Call on Jesus. He will save you. He loves to save sinners. So as far as you and I are concerned, we believe Jesus wants to save every single person we know. You should just assume that. Whether or not he does is up to him. When all is said and done, he's going to save all of his people. God ordains the end, the salvation of his elect, with certain means. What is the means by which God accomplishes the salvation of this family he is giving to his son Jesus? What's the means? We share the gospel. Okay? The means and the end. God ordains the end, the salvation of the elect, with a certain means. They hear the gospel. So the gospel answers the question, how do I become a Christian? And then the reason we take this good gospel to anyone else in the world is the doctrine of evangelism. And that is the gospel is to proclaim in all the earth. All the earth should hear about Jesus. We want everyone in the world to believe in Jesus. Why? Because we want them giving God the glory he deserves. That's the reason people should be converted. Not just that it saves them from hell and they can go to heaven. The reason is God deserves the worship and the obedience of their life. So that's a God-centered way of thinking about evangelism. And so evangelism answers the question, who can be saved? And as far as we're concerned, anyone in the world. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone in the world is a whoever. If they call on the Lord, they can be saved. And again, that humility part, if he saved me, he can save anybody. So that's a diagram that, that, uh, that I... I developed, I hope it helps you distinguish between these three things. Election, the gospel, and evangelism are really answering three different questions. Why am I a Christian? God did this. Who can become, how do I become a Christian? Trust Jesus. Uh, who can be saved? Anyone. And then the sixth objection, or the sixth caution, is simply this never separate speaking about election from the free offer of the gospel. Have you noticed somebody doing that this morning? That would be me. I believe this. I believe this with all my heart. I think this is consistent with biblical teaching, which is why if I was preaching a text and I have in your presence, not only the beginning of 1 Peter, where he talks about God calls you to be born again, not only the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, where he talks about God chose you, but then I did a series called From Eternity to Eternity, How God Claims and Loves You, and in that series, we looked at the doctrine of election. I preached this doctrine publicly, and I assume unbelievers are tuning in. I assume you're bringing unbelievers to church. I assume you're directing them to our webpage so they can take part in, uh, in our Sunday worship services. 
But I'm going to assume when I preach those texts that unbelievers are tuning in and that they might wonder, oh, so God's already consigned, this is called determinism. God's already consigned what happens, therefore there's nothing I can do about it. That is, it goes by the name determinism or fatalism. The Bible does not teach that. Go back a week or two in our study. There's, here's a mystery, what J.I. Packer called an antimony. Human beings are absolutely responsible for what they do. God is absolutely sovereign over those choices. So no one can say, well, it's God's fault. I never got saved because he didn't change my heart. So, so if you're having coffee with somebody and you, you're trying to share Jesus with them and they have a little bit of familiarity with these doctrines, maybe they had a bad experience with an over-eager Calvinist. And they say, hey, look, Mike, I get it. I know I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to believe this, but I can't. I'm dead in sin. I naturally have no appetite for God. I'm naturally an enemy of God. Therefore, I can't do anything about this until God first moves. Is that right? Are you stuck? Do you have to wait for God to first move? No. What do you tell that person? You look them in the eye and you say, Jesus says, call on my name and I'll save you. If you refuse to do that, that's not Jesus' fault. That's yours. But Mike, I don't have a heart to do that. I don't have the ability to do that. Okay, you're right. Ask him for the ability, and he will give it to you. If you won't ask, why not? See, it's, so it's, it's one of these characters that God wouldn't save you even if you wanted to be saved. So I'm making this point. Never separate speaking about election from the free offer of the gospel. That's why already this morning I've offered you the gospel when I've been talking about election. There it is from Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Think about John 3, 16. It's the most famous Bible verse in, uh, in, in America anyway. And you used to see it in the end zones of football games. And I think the NFL did away with that because that would seem too controversial. I, I think they put a, the kibosh on that. What's John 3.16? God loved the world, so loved the world. That preposition so does not mean so much, but in this way. So literally, it's God loved the world in this way, in this way. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So are you whoever? Apparently, then believe and you'll have life. There you go. God gave his son so you don't perish. That's the free offer of the gospel. Now, there was a brand of theology that came along and said, that verse says whoever believes. And that means, that implies you are able to believe. Actually, that verse says nothing about your ability. Only permission. You are free to believe. And if you look at other portions in John, John 3 alone, you'll see that men love the darkness rather than the light. John begins... (laughs) His gospel by saying, you've been born again, not by the will of man, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of whoever, but by God, he even begins with sovereign grace. <laughs> so, there's a brand of theology that, set, that says, uh, whoever believes implies ability. And it's not talking about ability. Again, if you know you lack the ability, ask God, and he will surely give it to you. Let's just close on our next five minutes. Uh, we, we looked at this a little bit last week. I just wanted to define our terms to set up our discussion for next week. And uh, that is, uh, I want to stress that everyone has some doctrine of election because the Bible uses the words elect, choose, foreknowledge, predestined. 
They're clearly the words are there. Then the question is, what do they mean? What, who's doing the electing? Who's doing the choosing? Again, the Arminian view is, basically, God gives you free will. He doesn't force himself on you. It's up to you to choose. He doesn't choose. You do the choosing. But it's interesting, if you look at the way these words are used in the Bible, God is always the subject of these. God chose. God elected. God foreknew. God predestined. Not us. So what's the issue? I'll just lay this before you, and then we'll pray for our worship. The issue is, and forgive me for repeating, I'm sort of going back to last week. I think I went over this. Does God elect sinners to salvation based on a condition? And that is knowing ahead of time that they would will, of their own free will, choose him. Or does God elect sinners unconditionally based on nothing foreseen in them or what they will do? So this, and if you're familiar with Westminster Confession, they're, they're alluding to this issue in a number of different paragraphs in the Confession. But the Arminian view is this. Here's what these words mean, elect, choose, now predestined. God looks down the quarters of time, sees that you of your own free will will come to faith, and on the strength of knowing that ahead of time, that's the condition. He knows ahead of time. The condition is you're going to choose freely. Uh, and th- see, therefore, God's off the hook for if people don't get saved. Because, you know, you're the one doing it, so God can't be blamed for the non-salvation of people. Which raises the other question of what are they like in their natural state? And that's what we'll get into immediately next time. So this view is God looks down the corners of time, sees, that, sees what you're going to do, and on the strength of that, elects you, chooses you, etc. I just I think it's extremely hard to find that view in the Bible. Extremely hard. I believe the biblical view is this. Does God elect sinners unconditionally? Is this based on nothing foreseen in them or what they will do? That's what the Bible teaches. Again, if you're a person who says, I want to be saved, are you telling me, Mike, there's nothing I can do about it? If you think that, I've not been clear with you. There is something you can do about it if you want to be saved. Call on the name of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus. He will save you. He loves to save sinners. He's the only hope for sinners. His salvation is magnificent. It will transform you. So put another way, does God choose us or do we choose him? If he chooses us, man, does that change everything. Comfort, humility, boldness, confidence, rest. Look, if he chose me, can I lose my salvation? Why would he choose me to unchoose me? So we're going to see, that's why in, in the five points of Calvinism, if you begin with total depravity, well, I'm actually getting into my next point in the handout. So let me stop there and pray for you, and then we can have a couple of face-to-face, hi, how are you? Lord, uh, I think the reformers said, this doctrine should be handled with great care. I trust that I've done that this morning. If I haven't, please forgive me. I pray you would use uh, what we've seen, the scriptures, to bring tremendous comfort to our hearts, to humble us, and to bring out of us the praise, the adoration, the worship, the glorying in you that you deserve. You're the God who saves. It's just magnificent. So we pray on the strength of what you show us about ourselves and who you are to save us, our worship would in some way measure that. Uh, We would just, our, our lives would redound to your glory in word and deed, speech, everything. And so we thank you for this time. If there's been error in this, may it be corrected. Keep us from error. Keep us in the truth. Lord, as you prayed, Lord Jesus, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Give us a love for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.
right, let's do that. And then we're back to faces. 